Okay. I, uh, had to do something else here for a quick second. Now, this is a little weird. You know, it's not my, uh, you know, it's not my norm thing to do, so... And, and what I'm doing right now is, is, is legal. This is a legal process that I have been accepted to, to do. I don't know. I, I just hope it's going to be a, a different chapter in my life. Okay. See, I guess we'll have to give this a try here and see what we got going on. Wow, I definitely got a taste in my mouth like I haven't had for a long time. And oh my goodness, an itch, an itch, an itch, and I love the itch. Oh my god, I miss that so much. Oh wow. Okay, I'm doing this on my own now. Bye. I'm Garth Mullins. This is Crackdown. Episode 15, Apocalypse Prescribing. Before we get started, uh, a note for people who are in British Columbia, Canada. Over the last week or so, things have changed a lot. So if you're wired to down, to benzos, to stimulants... Um, there are more options right now. What can be prescribed has expanded. So you can get hydromorphone. That's still lauded. You can get MSLON. You can get Dexedrin. You can get Ritalin. There's a range of benzos, including Xanax and Clonazepam. And there's also options for um, you know tobacco and alcohol. So if you're worried about the drug supply running out, or if you're worried about not being able to uh, you know, keep a physical distance from people, if you have to score every day, you should go to our website and check out the details on how you might be able to access this. All right. This is Sam Fenn, Crackdown Senior Producer, and um, we're, we're going to be talking about the new clinical guidelines, the new policy. Um, in here in BC, basically all show. But first of all, Garth, I think we should start out by just giving people an impression of how uh, fucking grim things are here right now. So what is what have what have the past couple weeks looked like from your point of view? Yeah, Sam, it's bad. Um, overdoses are back up. They were declining a bit, but they're back into as bad as they've been really for the last couple of years. Uh, harm reduction services and overdose prevention sites are closing in the neighborhood or they're operating at a diminished capacity. People can't social distance. You know, there's there's a lot of uh, crowded living conditions and a lot of people just don't have housing. So people can't put that distance between themselves. I was through the neighborhood yesterday. People were still crowded on the sidewalks and everything. And last week, we were able to confirm the first person who tested positive for COVID-19 in the neighborhood. So one can only assume that combination of things is is pretty bad. And and the other, obviously, the really, really big part of this is that we keep hearing in press conferences from the city that there's going to be some kind of housing option for people who are homeless or who live in a shelter or SRO and aren't able to physically distance, right? But we haven't 
we're not seeing like any any sort of like bold action take place there. That's right. Um, we we haven't heard anything like that. Like Vancouver Coastal Health has told people to keep their physical distance, but we're still waiting on some kind of housing option. And then you know finally, um, everyone's worried about the drug supply running out. So there's already been kind of reports of shortages. Uh, we've heard about prices going up, but you know, with all the borders and everything closed, um, it's got to be disrupting the illegal drug supply. The first person I thought to call was uh, Simona Marsh on uh, Crackdown's editorial board. She's also on the board of the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, but she understands a lot about sort of the supply and distribution side of the illegal market. So uh, I called her up while she was actually working at the front desk at Vandu. Hey there, Simona. I am. Oh, good. <laughs> How's it going? I'm good. How are you? Good. Uh, so you can talk to me for a few minutes? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm at work, but that's okay. So you're talking to us through a mask right now, hey? Yes. Right. Can you tell? A little bit, but you sound good to me. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> And so you're you're behind the desk there at Vandu, and people are just in the room there, eh? Yeah. What's it like there? Is it is it very crowded? Is it normal? What's going on? Oh, it's, it's crowded. Yeah, more than usual. Yeah, well, because it's raining out too, and you know other places that are open, right? So, how are people keeping you know six feet apart from each other, as VCH has has told us all to do? I'm not sure how they're doing it, but not very well here. We're gonna have a meeting today at four about it. Yeah. And part of your job sitting at that desk is now to give out harm reduction supplies. Like, people can't help themselves anymore, right? Correct. Are you worried about running out of anything? Um, pipes. <laughs> yeah. And if you run out of pipes, that means people share pipes, and pipes are, you can transmit COVID-19 on pipes. That's right. And, I mean, not only that, like, hep C, and, like, mm -hmm. down here we're dealing with both of them, because we're still having people die of fentanyl overdoses. Right. And um, you and me were texting a couple of days ago, and you were saying you were worried about the illicit drug supply and what's going on with that. Well, um, powder just about doubled. Like, it's crazy. So wait, exp explain that. You mean, like, to get Coke is now twice as expensive? Yeah. Like, the prices went, went up. Well, I guess not twice as expensive, but they went up. So what was it before? Okay, it was like... 400 for a quarter zip, and now it's 550 for a quarter zip. Right. I've never bought in that quantity before. What does that mean? <laughs> I'm I'm small time, Simona. <laughs> zip is 28 grams. <laughs> Look, I've never been to really. I don't go shopping at Whole Foods either. I don't, or like I Costco. Like I don't get a jar of mayonnaise that's six feet tall. You know, I'm just like a simple one at a time kind of guy. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, because I know you kind of have special knowledge in all this because you have as we delicately put it on this show you have uh, helped coordinate I'm an ethical people. substance use navigator could you say that again I'm an ethical substance use navigator right so but you've been in this game for a long time what do you think is going to happen in the next couple of weeks to the supply well <laughs> it's, the borders keep being shut and it's, well, I can see a lot of people, they don't want to sell it because they don't know when they're going to get the next one, right? Mm -hmm. All the borders and everything are closed. So, I don't know. So, I don't think it's going to be good. Well, uh, let's keep in touch about um, how things are going with the, 
with the drug supply. I'm just, I'm interested to see what goes on and I'm kind of worried for everybody who relies on it so much, you know? Me too. Like I'm worried about them like making it shit and then people going down, right? Right. right. So hopefully not. Okay. Well, good luck and stay safe if you can. I will do. You too. Okay. Take it easy. Some you Bye. So Simona tells us that Coke prices are up. And I talked to Crackdown editorial board member Jeff Loudon yesterday, and what he's seeing is a 50% increase in the price of down. So, you know, from $40 a quarter, it now seems like it's going for 60 a quarter, at least where he is. And then, you know, we've heard from Laura that her um, connections are telling her, uh, get ready, uh, droughts are coming, you better stockpile. And there's also some reports of stimulants being harder to come by right now. Right. So it's it's patchy and it's it's hard to get an overall picture. I mean, it always is, but you can really see the the jitters now. Oh, I guess all of this begs the question of what what it is we should be actually doing right now. Like, what would help um, keep people safe? I mean, it's safe supply. You know, I know I know we say that a lot, but it's true in COVID nineteen. But it's also been true for the whole overdose crisis. And in fact, I first heard about it in the last overdose crisis. So in Vancouver, there was an overdose crisis and an HIV crisis in the 90s. So you actually even, you sent me a poster and this is from, is this from the event that you would have, is this a rally or something? Um, the poster's from a meeting that we put together in the summer of 1998. You know, there was uh, like a lot of overdoses, a lot of overdose deaths being projected Uh, for the next year. And so we were having a meeting about what we could do about this. And what we were saying is, let's legalize and decriminalize heroin. Um, And so the poster is of a fist holding a needle with a circle of chain going around it. You drew drew this and then this just stuck in your head, right? So when you wanted to make the crackdown, you drew it again to be the logo of the show. That's right. Yeah. And I know, you know, at that time I was really new to all this. I was just trying to, you know, stay ahead of my dope sickness from the day to day. So yeah, I was at the meeting, I made the poster, but Dean Wilson was really involved in this stuff back then. And it was just around that time that he started advocating for the same thing. So I called up Dean Wilson. He's on our editorial board and he's been an activist in this town for a couple of decades. Are you there, buddy? Yep, yep. All right, cool. Hey, uh, thanks, thanks for making a little time how are you doing man oh i'm all right i'm just uh i'm kind of tired today i just um it was good i saw my son and um it's good to see people you love and that you know what i mean because we're all kind of estranged even though we all live in the same city you know what i mean right and so and so did you guys stay like six feet apart or how did you manage that I gave him a big hug and uh that was as close and then then it was all it was there was it was, you know, we both kept our heads, you know what I mean? It just, you know, it was what it was. And if I get the shit because I gave my son a hug, well, too bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I guess you got to do what you got to do, you know? Yeah, yeah. We both needed it, so that was all there was to it. Do you remember the first time you raised the idea of safe supply with somebody other than another drug user? Actually, it was all part of the original Insight stuff. In our version, before it opened up uh, um, professionally and like legitimately, we wanted to give drugs out at the place. 
So what did you call it before before the term safe supply? How did you refer to it? Like just like we should give out heroin or prescription heroin? Well, we, or? Yeah, well, we always uh, viewed it as a um, 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 a uh, medical supply of, of drugs for addiction. Right. Not for pain, not for nothing else, but for addiction. We could go to our doctors. They would give us a, um, a, a prescription. And, you know, we, we always thought it'd be a lot like methadone. Where we went and picked up... Right. Our dillies every day, or our Esalons every day, and, and, and went home. Being able to provide that heroin to ourselves has always been the dream, but it's been hard, right? Like, we were able to just open safe injection sites by ourselves illegally without permission. But it's sort of like the government has the keys to the medicine chest here. And when I, when I say it was hard to organize this sort of thing, you know, like a safe supply. It's hard to organize it openly. People have been organizing it on the down low for a long time. And like we know people who've, you know, used drug testing and kind of found the best illegal source they can and and hooked up their sort of network of people with it. And they've sort of cobbled that along. But that engenders a lot of um, sort of legal risk for people uh, in that position. You know, more recently, um, just last year, we did put forward a proposal where drug users would do just that. We called it, uh, you know, a heroin compassion club or a heroin co-op. What What is a heroin co-op? So the idea would be that, um, you know, a group of drug users, we organize ourselves and we buy uh, diacetylmorphine. You know, we find a source for it and purchase in bulk pharmaceutical grade heroin and we distribute it to people in the co-op. So we pool our money we get the stuff, we do this stuff, and at the same time, we seek an exemption um, from the government so that the cops aren't kicking in the door and seizing it and arresting everybody. This was the idea of the heroin co-op. We're just uh, getting ready to get going here. I think we're planning on doing something quite historic here, and um, Garth is uh, thinking there's some wisdom and, and doing a bit of documentation, which I support, but over to Garth. And uh, so we're thinking that this is going to be like the insight of this crisis and it's great for people to see drug user activists in the front seat so i asked so what you're hearing is footage that we gathered about a year ago right garth um the guy that was talking is uh, dr evan wood and he was chairing a meeting that was full of drug user activists in vancouver yeah we were all kind of gathered around this conference table at the bc center on substance use and some of us were on the phone calling in and we're sort of, you know, debating how this would actually work. You know, we were trying to blueprint out what a heroin co-op would be. I think this should be implemented in any type of drug user network that we could establish. Having a substance use navigator, having a safe supply that's, that's here and a place to go no matter what, that isn't going to be um, oppressive in any way or, or do surveillance on you. Yeah. Whatever people are going to do, it's replacing the the shit and the pig dewormer and all that stuff with that's right something that's straight up pharmaceutical decent dope right and then the second thing i think is is the democracy so it's the safe supply and the democracy which is the people who are members of the cooperative decide what they're going to do with it we need some kind of plan like we don't want to be george bush on the boat saying mission accomplished and then you know Two years later, the war is as bad as it. We've got to follow up on this almost weekly. We've yeah. got to make sure that this, this thing is happening. I think I mentioned this, but I want this to come forcefully 
uh, when it drops on the lap of government, which I think will yeah. um, help grease the wheels with um, Health Canada and you know um, the province, and even you know people who may be skeptical, like like the RCMP. We put this idea, um, you know, sort of gently before the authorities that would have to agree with it, and they didn't want anything to do with it. They could have given us an exemption to go and try this out, and we never would have had to have this scramble um, right now during COVID. So for for most of the time we've been making this show, um, most of us have, you know, have felt like the the dream of um, some sort of government-sanctioned safe supply in BC was pretty remote that uh it didn't seem like it was going to happen oh yeah it just felt stuck you know if if safe injection sites were a victory from the last overdose crisis the the one we need now is safe supply and it just seemed like it ain't coming that's what it seemed like for a long time but things have this the speed of events has accelerated really quickly in the past few weeks right so Mm -hmm. when did you first hear about these new guidelines um that there was that there was possibly some new a new policy coming. I mean, the, the, you didn't even know there was a policy coming. You d- I didn't know anything. None of us knew anything was happening, really. Are we recording? Um, yeah, I am. The last time I think I'd been recorded is when uh, the police surveillance my phone. <laughs> <laughs> Guy Felicella uh, was a drug user on the downtown east side for about 30 years, and he's now a harm reduction activist. Yeah, so <clears throat> right now you've been spending a lot of time with your uh, your wife and kids, right? Yes. They're all at home? Yes, they're, my wife works from home. My kids are, um, yeah, they're off school. They're at home, so just there. Yeah, what is the thing that you guys all do together that nobody else knows about? Like, what's the weird little thing that your family does to remain kind of keeping it cool, you know? With my kids, um, I don't know if you know that the the cart the disney cartoon it's called the incredible so my kids have these yeah. incredible suits that they dress up in all right who are you incredible and who are you uh dad. and who is dad and so there's this big giant uh machine that fights them so it's you yes that's me <laughs> and i chase them around the house and crush them and and then my son will jump on my back and he'll be like, okay, it's time for us to win now. And then that's my cue to, to have them destroy me. Oh, okay, the Underminer's dead. You've overdosed six times, right? So safe supply is like literally crucial for for what you your whole worldview, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, so like in about nine months, I'd overdosed six times, but in twenty years of using heroin, I never overdosed once. I do remember the the last time I was brought back to life was uh, in booth five at the supervised uh, injection site. 
and I remember I remember waking up and uh, pulling. I, the first thing you notice when you when you come back is that the the tubes lodged in your throat, so it's really you're confused and you pull this tube out and you're like, you know, like whoa. And uh, I look over to my left and the nurse is crying. And I just remember staring at her and I just said, well, why are you crying? And she was like, um, guy, you'd been gone for about 10 minutes. And uh, I just didn't think you were coming back. And I was just like, watching her cry made me cry. And, and, uh, and, and that was where I, I, I had to do something. I, I knew I had to do something different. Like I had that, I had to figure something out. And so. I wanted to talk to you today about the safe supply document that we worked on. Like uh, about two weeks ago, I think it was, Christy Sutherland, uh, the Dr. Christy Sutherland uh, from the downtown east side here who does uh, a lot of prescribing to people in the neighborhood, she calls me on the ferry when she's on the ferry and I'm already in isolation here in my apartment. And she says, oh my God, um, can we talk really quickly about what people are going to need when they're quarantined? Like what drug users need when they're quarantined? And I said, sure, I, that's a that's a quick answer. Drugs, <laughs> you know, like fucking everything, whatever they're wired on, they need the pharmaceutical equivalent. And she's like, yes, for, for sure. And, and I'm like, you know, food, smokes, money, a bit of entertainment, communication with the world, that would be a good start. And also a place to be in, um, you know, and that's where I got brought into this discussion and then I was talking to you every day. I was talking to people from Vancouver Coastal Health every day, then people from the province. And then we're sort of writing this draft document together and commenting on it, right? And then you and me start to have this fight with just about the rest of the world over who gets this thing we're working on. So it's like we get people to agree, yes, people should be prescribed whatever they want. So this document now says – you know, you can get stimulants or um, opioids or cannabis or alcohol, whatever, right? And uh, and that's great. That's what we've been fighting for. But then if the gate is so is closed so tight that almost no one can get in. And so you and me were like, this should apply to anyone who's at risk of COVID-19, right? And, and I think they realized, as we intended, that could be anybody, so this was our way to make this applicable to anybody, right? But do you remember that that fight back and forth? Totally. I mean, they just, uh, you know, I was, they were, I, you know, it was funny is because they would always say, well, I was like, so you think, you think it's only for a certain amount of people? Um, I said, you're then putting us in uh, a certain box of, you know, who can get it and who can't. And so I said, the ones that can't, how are they going to practice uh, physical distancing? They're not, because they're going to have to still do the daily grind. And, you know, OAT just doesn't cover that for some people. Listen, these guidelines aren't radical guidelines. They're sensible guidelines. Like, you know, that's, that's the thing. They reduce the risk of overdose death and the spread of COVID-19. It's nothing radical about it. It's actually just a sensible guideline that's actually going to improve people's lives, give them the ability to practice this physical distancy, and 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 then um, you know their health will improve. People's people's lives are going to improve because of it. Remember those meetings about the 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 safe supply meetings that we were at? We were proposing and trying to come up with a paper and oh, a model yeah. for a heroin compassion club. You remember that? Oh yeah, yeah, like. I'll tell you, I've had people like Guy Filichel, other people, really big fucking into the harm reduction movement, phone me 
And Ashley, one of them was in tears saying, thank you, Dean, for all the work you've done and, and getting this going because they said that without what you guys have done, especially with the Heroin Compassion Club, stuff like that, I don't know if we would have got these solutions as quick as we did. So, so what actually is the new policy? This is a, a sort of set of rules for what a doctor can prescribe for someone who's wired. So if it's like if, if you're wired to stimulants or opioids or benzos or, or whatever, um, and you're kind of got a risk of withdrawal during this COVID-19 stuff, um, you can get in on this. You know, Sam, one of the interesting things about this is they're actually – saying this isn't about treatment. And I, I remember there's part of the um, part of the policy. Could you read that? Do you, do you have that in front of you? Yes. Uh, so in the BCCSU new clinical guidelines, um, they write, quote, these guidelines are not intended for treatment of substance use disorders, but rather to support individuals to self-isolate or social distance and avoid risk to themselves or others. Right. So it, it's kind of interesting, right? On the one hand, they're saying this is kind of an emergency measure. So we worry about what happens when the emergency is over. You know, there's no there's no guarantees about that. But it also says they're not trying to change our behavior, make us use less or, or something like that. You know, uh, they're just saying this is what we can give you um, during this time. Laura and Dean are the first two people I know who are on this new deal. And Dean seemed a little uncertain at first, but then he changed his mind. I just started my uh, my medicinal chipping dose today. <laughs> what do you? What's that? What do you mean? I got my. Uh, I talked to Doctor Sutherland this morning because I'm scared of going out and buying street dope, and so she gives me 252 and a half grays a day to shoot. So you're uh, you're now accessing the uh, I'm on enhanced the program. prescribing. I'm on the program. Got two months prescription, and I get a weekly dispense right so i was given i was given 20 grades and fucking 35 tens <laughs> right on dean that's great congratulations man <laughs> yeah it's working so i um i got a hold of my doctor yesterday um and asked uh if i could um get the uh, safe reply safe reply um replacement for my heroin use and my um, cocaine use, on, and that's um, above and beyond what I already have as my Metadol prescription. And what did the doctor say? She says, "Okay, how much are you using? What, what, what is the which one would you like?" <laughs> and so, you just said, "Yeah, I told her I was I'm using at least at least a quarter a day." Right, a quarter a down. Yeah. Yeah, upwards to a half gram, and then. And then told her that it's usually between anywhere from forty to eighty to hundred a rock a day. So, so you told the you told your doctor like on the phone is this? You betcha. So first, I I I, I called and I spoke with the nurse, and you know the nurse I know very well, and you know we just talked about it, and I just said, hey, you know, for both my partners and my you know welfare, the less I am having to travel is the better. Right. Yeah. And do you think if they give you, um, I guess a whole sort of fistful of hydromorphone, of Dilaudid, and then a whole bunch of Dexedrine, I guess, is the stimulant, right? Yep. Um, do you think that's going to – do you think you're going to need to top up from the street supply or do you think that so might that's hold the you? Thing. 
is that if it's not enough, I call, I call her, tell her, and she will put my prescription up. Wow. Well, I'm really glad for you, Laura. I'm really, I'm really happy for you. Thank you, and I'm, I'm actually pretty happy too. I'm excited because this just actually might be a, a, a kind of a different, uh, maybe a different exit for me than I had planned. Maybe I'm going to finally get to do non-street narcotics and not have to do street narcotics anymore. Right. Yeah, I hope so. Me too. It would be kind of cool, I think. Sam, while we've been recording this, I just got this text from Laura and it's, you know, it's one of those texts that, that jumps out and shakes with excitement. Like that's how it's, that's how she programmed it into her phone. It says, I got a week's worth of Dexedrin and Dilaudid from the pharmacy, exclamation point, exclamation point. And I think like, because your friends are benefiting in this really obvious way, that's probably part of the reason, Garth, why you've been telling all of us who work at the show, you know, that as we find problems with this new policy, that we shouldn't like... That we that we shouldn't um, forget to stop and say how important and sort of cool it is that this is happening. Yeah, that's right. And it's it's like it's like everything probably in my life. I always end up saying this is a great first step. Now let's do the next thing. You know. Yeah. So can we talk a little bit about what what are the some of the obvious limitations and problems with this new set of policies that we see? For sure. The screaming headline here is that most people do coke, fentanyl, or heroin, and none of that is in the program. So you can't get um, pharmaceutical fentanyl, you know, patches or whatever. You can't get diacetyl morphine, which is pharmaceutical heroin, and you can't get cocaine, which is what rock is made out of. So um, that is the sort of quintessential element of safe supply is getting the pharmaceutical safe version of what you're getting off the street. So I would say another big question I have about this program is what dose level people are going to be able to get. We know that in other, in some of Vancouver's other sort of low threshold um, substitution programs, the dose is set at a place that kind of lets people get um, not sick, but these programs can be reticent to let people get high. In this document, the mechanism is is all about prescribers, right? There's going to be a lot of discretion for doctors. Right. So maybe we should say for people who don't know, first of all, like um, how how are doctors usually with requests to increase um, opiates? And and what are you hearing so far from doctors about the, these new guidelines? So d- doctors, you know, mostly I've experienced with, with methadone and they're they're willing to up the dose. But what they want to do is they want to hit you in that sweet spot for them where you're not feeling high from it. You're not feeling any sedative or intoxicating effects. You're just feeling that flat line. So you're not feeling dope sick, but you're not also not feeling that high. You're just kind of – it's a straight line through your day. And I think that a lot of prescribers think that about other kinds of drugs too. So all that to say basically there's going to have to be a cultural change that happens among doctors um, in order to comply with the new guidelines. Yeah, that's right. It's been the business of doctors uh, to make sure that we're not getting high. And now they have to not care about that, right? We report the amount that we're using and we may be using every day to try and, you know, feel a little touch of euphoria or feel something above just neutral, above just not being ill. 
and they got to be okay with that. One thing that I think won't help in particular is is any kind of mixed messaging coming from politicians. Mm-hmm. On the early edition, Bonnie Henry uh, said that these new policies, uh, quote, won't, won't be, be a free-for-all. Free <laughs> It'll be a, a way of supporting people um, who have the needs right now. And, and Minister uh, of Mental Health and Addictions, Judy Darcy, told the CBC that um, these drugs aren't meant to provide people with a path to intoxication, but instead they're supposed to be about um, removing withdrawal symptoms. I do worry that these kind of statements, I understand why public health officials are making these sorts of statements, but I worry that if a doctor hears this, it could just lead them to to be more reticent to give out the dose that they really should. Yeah, I mean, I don't get it, though. Like, why why in the middle of the apocalypse do you care if I get a little bit high? Honestly, just, like, let it go, you know? It's it's amazing to me. Right. I think that the, the last problem that we haven't talked about yet, and it is maybe, like, the elephant in the room, is um, whether or not this is actually a permanent change that has taken place, or if this is something very temporary that will be yanked away as soon as COVID is gone. Yeah, I mean, I'm worried about that too. You can see some of the writing in the policy um, itself, sort of, where it references sort of that physical distancing and stuff like that. It, it sort of foreshadows an end to it. Um, some of the official rules are only changed until September, so that's six months away. And we can't really get a commitment off of anybody that it is going to be permanent. So, I think it's going to be a fight. I think we're going to have to have this fight down the road sometime. What's going to happen in 18 months or whatever when they've got this thing under control and wrapped up? What are they going to tell me then? So what's going to happen is I'm going to get right jacked up properly on real drugs. And then they're going to fucking, what, taper me down? (laughs) Like, fuck, will they ever have a fight on their hands? You better believe it. And the other thing is, is that, you know, what happens if, there happens to be a quote shortage of the safe supply a, a shortage of the of the of the pharmaceuticals like if you go to your pharmacy and they're out that's right you know with the virus and stuff how do we know what meds are going to be available to get to people or what so i want to make sure that uh, even if i don't need to have that much that i have it you want to have a little wiggle room yeah you betcha and see and even with like when i was talking with the doctor she's like there's not much research with dextrogen for people who smoke rock She's, so I'm, and cause she's asking me like, well, what do you want? How much do you want? And I'm like, well, you, you know, kind of, I don't exactly know. Yeah. I mean, cause, cause one would think the best, um, the best prescribed substitute for, for rock would just be cocaine, you know? Yeah, you would think so. But cocaine and heroin and fentanyl are not part of this policy. No, not yet. Not yet. So we should push for it, eh? I think so. So I, I I get the, I get the next steps, but j- just just we we shouldn't rush through the victory lap. We we get so we get so few wins. We should think about this well, for a second. Well, I don't and think I, this is a win at all. To tell you, oh all yeah, it, 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 I think it's a response, and it's a great response. Right. And I'm really happy, and hopefully the win will be when this COVID goes away that they keep the same way of looking at addiction as they did when the COVID was here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like yes. once the vaccination comes out that everybody's going to get and everything goes back to normal in a year or so, I, I still think this is going to be from a 12 to 18 month scenario that we're looking at right now. No, I know what you mean. 
Like, yeah. uh, like you and me have been pushing for something like this for a long time, right? That would have been a reasonable, like a not radical, just a reasonable response to the overdose crisis that we lived through for the last five years. Exactly. So we sat in all these meetings, we asked for this. And so I've gotten used to commenting on documents and writing little things and doing little meetings that really go nowhere. And so all of a sudden, this went somewhere fast. And I was like, I was like, wow, that's great. But also, God damn it, why couldn't we have done that before? I mean, how, what did you feel? Right. If that had to come out in response to the overdose crisis, I thought that would have been a big win that they listen. All they're doing is they're trying to prevent themselves from getting COVID from the fucking the, the dirty masses. Right. Right. Because because they could they, they could never see us as human beings before. But now that they see us as disease vectors, they're scared exactly. and they want to do something. We're still not people. We're disease vectors. It's because they're worried about a fucking big hump here in downtown east side could cause it to fucking go crazy in the city of vancouver well i'm gonna i'm gonna talk to the minister darcy so give me a question put that into a question what would you like me to ask her you know my question is this is the perfect answer to the overdose response why now do we have to wait till everybody's dying of COVID do we, before we got a, a sensible approach to what was happening when thousands of us were dying in the years previous? Announcing participant, uh, Judy. Hi, Minister. Hello. Hey, it's Garth. Since we since we just have eight minutes, let me jump right in then. Um, yeah. Y- you know, um, a lot of a lot of people. Have, Are we rolling yeah. already? I I sure am. Yep. I was I was born rolling. A lot of. <laughs> this is Judy Darcy, British Columbia's Minister for Mental Health and Addictions. She's the first minister who's ever agreed to come on this show. A lot of people have thought these guidelines were a good idea for a long time. So what? What happened? What, what made the government do this? Well, we're dealing with two public health emergencies. It's an unprecedented situation in British Columbia, and people who use drugs are at double risk, both of the poison drug supply on the street and risk of being infected by COVID-19, and be, especially because people who use drugs are not being able to physical distance, not being able to follow the rules that we're all supposed to be following. And that puts people at really at double risk. And the federal government released those exemptions. um, And we just got working on it really fast to get them out the first possible time that we officially could. And that was last Thursday. So, Minister, would you fight to keep these uh, this this new sort of regime going after the end of COVID-19? Well, Garth, the when the exemptions were issued by uh, Health Canada last week, um, they said that they would expire on September, at the end of September 2020. Uh, that's what we're dealing with right now. Uh, so we're focused on doing everything we possibly can to, to get them out widely, as widely as possible so that we can support as many people as possible with these new guidelines. Minister, me too. I mean, we're we're trying to get the word out too. But what happens in September? It's, I know I know it's kind of the federal government has a place to play in all of this. But what about you? Will you fight to keep it going? Well, those conversations about these kinds of issues have been ongoing with the federal government for a long time. It did take uh, two public health emergencies for them to make these exemptions, 
And, you know, I don't have a crystal ball about what's going to happen six months from now. I can tell you that we have been working since day one, since our ministry was created, to expand the um, ranges of options that are available as far as prescription medications for people who use drugs. But not everything in this guideline is constrained by the federal government, right? Like there's a lot of things that could have happened before. Well, there are, there are things that we were already, that we, we had already intended uh, this year. We're already working actually on rolling out a number of uh, new projects. But this a pandemic came along and um, federal government put these new exemptions in place. And that's what we're living with now. And uh, we're going to use these new federal guidelines absolutely to the max by getting the word out everywhere, ensuring that there are more prescribers that are able to prescribe. You know, we have a, we have a double challenge now. We have to flatten absolutely. the curve and we have to save and we have to save lives from overdose. So I know I know a couple of people, a couple of, I know people who are being prescribed right now fentanyl and being prescribed heroin, like the pharmaceutical version of those. But I notice they're not part of the guidelines either of those. Well, as you know, we do have uh, we do have we don't have a domestic supplier of prescription of diacetylmorphine and prescription uh, heroin at this time. There's a limited supply. At Crosstown itself, I, it's my understanding that patients who are receiving diacetylmorphine there um, can still adhere to the physical distancing orders and accommodations are being made on a case-by-case basis. Well, I, uh, you know, I congratulate you on getting the guidelines through. I know um, for me, things kind of felt stuck for a long time and it's, it, it, was, it was great to see them go through so fast. I can't help but think of the stigma that you're talking about out there and that we were never really able to make ourselves seen as human beings before this crisis. And now I think that we're making ourselves understood as potential disease vectors. And maybe that's what's motivating um, some movement on this. You know, it's a, I know, I know it sounds a little cynical, but I, I, it's, it's hard to, um, it's hard for me to square things otherwise, you know? I've heard people say that and I understand that. And I, I, I get the stigma that, people use drugs live with. I mean, my mother struggled with addiction her entire adult life. We weren't allowed to talk about it in our family. Now, granted, that was, you know, decades ago in a small town in southwestern Ontario. In some respects, attitudes have changed. In many respects, they haven't. So I, 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 I get the stigma that goes with drug use, and it's one of the things that drives our work every single day in our ministry and all the folks who work on the front lines um, it also drives them. And, um, and you know, I want to say that uh, you know, people listening to this podcast, you advocating strongly on this podcast, and so many of your listeners out there have worked their butts off, I know, for many years uh, to get to this place. And I really want to congratulate them and thank them uh, because it took a whole lot of people working in a lot of different ways um, in order to get to this place. You know, the thing that surprised me... I'm so me, sorry like, to interrupt. Uh, you do have another call at 1015, so... Thank you very much for your time. Um, I really appreciate you talking to us. Good to talk to you, Garth. And uh, I know that I know that this podcast is, is one of the main ways that we're going to get the word out. And uh, I really appreciate having the time to talk to you today.
<laughs> Ryan McNeil, Crackdown Science Advisor. Thanks for joining us again. Um, I just wanted to start off by asking you, uh, just what's the difference between safe supply and treatment? Treatments focused around the, the treatment of specific substance use disorders with a, a clinical model that really wants to achieve a range of different outcomes, including, first of all, either a reduction in, uh, in illicit drug use or, you know, I- improvements in health, whereas safe supply seeks to really do something different. Um, it's not necessarily situated within a, a treatment-focused model and really just aims to improve public health outcomes by replacing potentially contaminated illicit drugs with ones that are safer. So the, the goals are really, really different, um, with the latter being much more harm reduction focused. Right. So with treatment, they kind of want to want to fix us a bit. And with safe supply, uh, it's like we are just trying to get a hold of what we're doing now, but a pharmaceutical version of it. Absolutely. It's really a situation where, where folks just want to be able to use something that's safer and not contaminated within the context of an illicit drug supply that's absolutely toxic right now. And yeah. to do so in a way that still gives them flexibility and agency in relation to their use in a way that's <clears throat> frankly not really possible within most treatment models that are, are necessarily structured because treatment's structured. What does the disease model of addiction have to do with all of this? Yeah, so the disease model of addiction really posits that addiction is a chronic and relapsing brain disease. And what that effectively means is that treatment is focused on producing a range of biological outcomes that effectively address the impulse to use illicit drugs. Um, And what that necessarily ends up doing is much like moral approaches to drug use before it ends up being focused primarily around disciplining the bodies of people who use drugs. And as we try to imagine a more humane drug policy that's aligned with what people actually want, there's a whole separate conversation that we need to have about what are what models of addiction make possible. And in turn, maybe we need to start confronting the very serious limitations of those so in the context of COVID-19, why are safe supply programs more important than ever? We're, we're in a situation right now where we really don't know what the fuck is going to happen with the illicit drug supply, but the, the early reports were very concerning. And there's effectively a handful of things that we're really worried about. And one is that the illicit drug supply is going to be outright disrupted in a way that's going to prevent people who need access to drugs from getting them. And then second, as that happens, we're so worried that people are going to die because drugs themselves are going to become more adulterated with different things that increase people's likelihood of overdosing and dying. So there's a an ethical and moral imperative right now. Like we've been living through the reality of the overdose crisis for years now, trying to dream something more into existence, uh, safe supply, legalization, or some kind of access to drugs that are safer. And our reality has just changed in a way that I don't think any of us would have anticipated would have happened with such speed because of the intersection of COVID-19 and the overdose crisis. 
And oh, yeah. that's made pharmaceutical drugs more widely available, available to people. It's absolutely amazing. But at the same time, I don't think that means we can't continue to dream for something more. And mm. I think that's where we can really be reflexive, talk about and consider the limitations of, of this approach and really push for something that's even better aligned with what people want. It's so rare that we get to shift the goalposts, and this is that rare opportunity where that's happened. If the idea is that people don't have to see their dealers anymore and can just see a pharmacist or or get a a pharmacy delivery or something like that, then we're not quite there yet because the new expanded prescribing guidelines in BC, they don't include uh, heroin like diacetylmorphine. You know, prescription heroin. They they don't include fentanyl. You know, pharmaceutical fentanyl, fentanyl patches, and they don't include cocaine. And so, for people who smoke rock, it sort of excludes them too. So there's a those are those are three of the most common things that people are going to the street and buying right now. And it, it seems important somehow in the system that the sort of maximum dosages and the levels are set so that people can't actually get high. Like, do you know why? all these people care if this is just enough for us to not feel sick or whether we feel slightly euphoric? Do you, do you know why that's an obsession of people? I think we really need to, to cycle back to what really seems to be the collision of the addiction as a brain disease model and the addiction as a moral failing approach. And what we really see is there's this imperative to not let people get high. And really, in the work that we've been doing, looking at hydromorphone distribution programs and really imagining what both opioid and stimulant safe supply could be, is that's a key limitation. We, we can't necessarily call these things safe supply in the, in the way that is probably aligned with what people want when you're removing the possibility of pleasure from the equation. Ultimately, there's serious questions about bodily autonomy and substance use that really aren't fully addressed by this. You know, some people are calling this safe supply. Is it is it important to distinguish this new expanded provincial guidelines from safe supply? Are we nitpicking? Is there is there a good reason to be clear about this? I think we need to separate the two out, and I think that effectively gives us space to now push for something that builds on the momentum of these guidance documents and pushes for something more. The first step for everybody is to make sure this doesn't get clawed back once we're out of this pandemic. We have to make these standards of care. At the same time, like let's just keep pushing. You know, We've been doing it for years, so let's just keep going and see what else we can make possible because at the end of the day that's that's what we have to do to get a a drug policy that works okay well thanks very much ryan um no no problem stay safe down there you too you too um yeah quarantine sucks god this (laughs) sucks fuck cool um do you mind if we just chat episode for a minute yeah, for sure. Um, let me just stop all the recordings here. So I get the glove and the mask and walk up to this little area here. 
drop off the stipend for Laura. Okay, and this is the this is the interview right here, stuck in the fence. Say that again. This is the interview. Okay. Right here. Perfect. Just like, make sure it doesn't. No, fall I'm out. coming. Crackdown is produced on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. You can support us at Patreon.com/CrackdownPod. Thank you to our Patreon supporters, to the new ones and the ones that are sticking with us all through this crisis. You help us keep going. And a special thanks to the people who chipped in a few bucks for frozen pizzas for Ray. He appreciates that. Our editorial board is Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Greg Fess, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Dave Murray, Al Fowler, Laura Shaver, and Sharice Kiwatton. R.I.P. Sharice. Crackdown's senior producer is Sam Fenn. Our producers are Lisa Hale and Alexander Kim. Our science advisor is Ryan McNeil, assistant professor and director of harm reduction research in the Yale School of Medicine. I'm Garth Mullins, host, writer, and executive producer. You can follow me on Twitter at Garth Mullins. Original score written and performed by Sam Fenn, James Ash, Kai Paulson, and me. Our theme song was written by me and Sam with accompaniment from Dave Jens and Ben Appenheimer. We make this podcast with funds from the Canadian Institutes for Health Research and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and from our Patreon supporters. Stay safe, stay inside if you can, and keep six. <laughs> All right. Okay, Laura, good to see you. Yeah, you Sorry too. Sorry we can't hug. Sooner or later we'll be able to hug again. Yeah, for sure. You have been listening to a Sided Media production. C-I-D-E-D. Find out more at sidedmedia.ca.